All throughout the New Testament, we find references to individuals from the Old Testament. You know this, right? When you're reading through the New Testament, 25% of your Bible, the back end of your Bible, it's referring to individuals who are in that first 75% of the Bible, the Old Testament. We call the Old Testament. Sometimes those individuals are simply mentioned as part of a title. Can you think of an example? Jesus is called, they cry out to Jesus, have mercy on us, son of David, David. <laughs> man, man is an Old Testament individual, right? Yeah. In, in, in Hebrew, Adam, right? Adam is a, is a character from the Old Testament. But have mercy on us, son of David, I think is what the blind men, the two blind men in Matthew cry out to him. Have mercy on us, son of David. Or when Jesus refers to the law of Moses, the law of Moses. Sometimes an Old Testament individual character is simply used as part of a, a reference, a kind of a more general reference, as when Jesus compares the lilies of the field to who in all of his glory? Solomon, right? Solomon. Not even Solomon in all his glorious royal attire compares to the way that God has robed or clothed these lilies. doesn't tell us a lot about Solomon, but it's there. It's a reference to an Old Testament individual. But at other times in the New Testament, Old Testament characters are presented as examples. I mean, I mean, deliberately as examples for us. Can you think of examples of that? Examples of them being examples? In Matthew chapter 12, for example, David is presented as an example in regard to prioritizing sacred things. How important are sacred things? Not more important than people's lives. Right? David even took of the bread that he wasn't supposed to take of to be able to feed his men. Just like the disciples who were picking heads of grain on the Sabbath, right? That's why Jesus is pointing his listeners to David's example there. In James chapter 2, similarly, Rahab is presented there as an example in regard to good works. Three chapters later in the same letter, in the book of James, James chapter 5, Job is referenced in regard to his endurance, his steadfastness, and not just a few verses later, Elijah is mentioned in regard to prayer, a man of prayer, the effectiveness of prayer. Lot is presented as such in terms of his righteousness in the midst of the ungodly. That's 2 Peter chapter 2. Abraham, who is mentioned almost 70 times in the New Testament, is often pointed to as an example of faith faith over and over again. In fact, the author of the book we know as Hebrews dedicates an entire chapter to just that. How Old Testament individuals are examples to us of faith. What chapter is that? Chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11. 
So we have a whole chapter dedicated to that. 16 individuals there explicitly named. Others alluded to examples of faith. Of course, one chapter later in Hebrews chapter 12, we're given another example. That is of Esau, the son of Isaac, brother of Jacob, who is presented as an example of what not to do. How not to be in regard to unholiness in regard to a kind of profaning of things that are sacred or holy, minimizing those things. Similarly, Balaam from the book of Numbers is talked about in regard to wrongdoing in Second Peter chapter 2. The Israelites themselves as a group are referenced in regard to idolatry in First Corinthians chapter 10. So in the New Testament, God does in fact use the stories and examples of Old Testament individuals to help us grow as believers. Sometimes that's poo-pooed in Christian circles. Yeah, right? You're just doing a character study from the Old Testament. Well, that's not a bad thing. A character study from the Old Testament is not a bad thing. If it's only that, right, as kind of a, with a moralistic bent, just be like them without the gospel, then we're in trouble. But when we have, when we're armed with the gospel and also with Old Testament examples of faith or of righteousness or, or of whatever, it's a powerful combination. It's a beautiful New Testament combination that we find in God's word. But what about Ezra? Ezra, an Old Testament individual. Ezra, a man not mentioned even once in the New Testament. <laughs> He's not mentioned there. But, He is central to the very book that we focused on last week in our Bible reading plan. I pray you've been encouraged. I pray you've been blessed by reading through those scriptures. I know it's a little wonky sometimes because you're kind of dropping in on where since we're only selecting certain verses or chapters out of these books, you may drop in. If you don't have familiarity with the book, you may think, what exactly is happening here? That's what I'd encourage you. Go ahead and read or skim over some of the other ones. If your Bible has an intro to a book, read through that intro. Uh, there's some really good study Bibles out there and a lot of tools that you can use. Or just ask a question of somebody and say, hey, I didn't read the whole book. I was reading the chapters from our calendar, but I have a question about such and such. Put it out there and let others encourage you in that. But what might God want to teach us through Ezra's example? He is highlighted for a particular reason in the Old Testament. His, the testimony of his life has been preserved for thousands of years so that us sitting here today in the 21st century, 2023 in Buckeye, Arizona, are talking about his life. Why is that? Let's try to answer that question by looking together at Ezra chapter 7. I'd like to focus in on verses 7 through 10. Ezra 7, verses 7 through 10. So navigate over there, turn there, navigate over there, and listen as I read, starting in Ezra 7, 7. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, Persian king, some of the people of Israel... And some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, that's four months, right? The journey. He came to Jerusalem. 
for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of Yahweh and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Okay, we're stopping there. So let's make sure we know where we are here in terms of biblical history, right? This is not, uh, the apostle Peter is not going to jump, drop in here with Ezra, is he? <laughs> Noah's not going to show up in this story. Where are we on kind of the timeline here of history? Well, many of you, as you've been reading through the reading plan with us, remember the end of Second Kings. It's a completely depressing ending. Very depressing ending. There's a little bit of a glimmer of hope when I think it's Jehoiakim is restored to the table and given a food portion. Anybody see on MeWe that little tablet I put on there? I put a picture of a tablet written in cuneiform from Babylon. And it, it's a receipt mentioning how much Jehoiakim from Israel should be given in daily food rations. So that's the scriptures alive right there, right? That is uh, archaeological proof of showing that the, what, exactly what the story was saying, that because of God's love for David and because he promised David that he would never let that lamp go out, the lamp of his covenant promise, Jehoiakim was restored to the table. He found favor with the king and he was given a food portion. That's the only glimmer of hope in that very depressing end of Second Kings because you remember what happens there. The southern kingdom of Judah was taken into exile and Jerusalem, including the temple, was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC. 586 years before the birth of Christ, this is what happened. The destruction that came upon them. Well, guess what? Talking about that timeline, just as Babylon had defeated Judah, they themselves were defeated by the Persians almost 50 years later, 539 BC. As we learned in Ezra chapter 1, the victorious Persian king, not Artaxerxes, this is the earlier king, Cyrus, he soon went about, he he released 50,000 Jews. He encouraged them to return to Israel. He allowed them to go back to their land in 537 BC. And that Jewish contingent wasted no time when they got there in rebuilding the altar in Jerusalem. The altar, if you remember, was outside of the temple edifice. It was in the main, the first courtyard there, that altar. They did that, and eventually they began reconstruction on the temple that had been destroyed 70 years before. And they completed that around 516 B.C. You tracking with me now? 586, destruction of the temple. 539, destruction of the Babylonians, <laughs> defeat of the Babylonians. 537, here come about 50,000 Jews. The word Jew, don't use Jew for people like Moses, because he was an Israelite. Jew comes from Judah and references the fact that only those Israelites who came back from the southern tribes are really what marked the majority of God's people. They were thus called Jews, Judahites or Jew in general. So Jew is really a post-exilic word that we use to refer to those people, Jew. So these Jews who came back, 50,000 of them in 537, and then again, 516 was the rebuilding, the completion of the rebuilding of that second temple that had been destroyed 70 years earlier. Now, 
Where are we here with Ezra when it talks about his four-month journey from Babylonia to Jerusalem? We are almost 60 years after that. So we're at 458 B.C. right here. So we're really clipping through time quite quickly in the book of Ezra. 458 is when Ezra is returning to Jerusalem. Now, when we read a passage like this, verses 7 through 10, when we read about people with names like Artaxerxes, do you know any Artaxerxes? I didn't have any in my class growing up when I was a kid. My name was weird enough, Bryce. (laughs) But Artaxerxes, no. And places, we read about places like Babylonia, We read about returning Jews with distinct classes like Levites and singers and gatekeepers and temple servants. When we read about this world and these events in this time, almost 2,500 years ago, it isn't always easy to relate then to now, is it? It's not always easy to do that. Then to now, them to us. Especially someone like Ezra. Why especially someone like Ezra? Look at verse 1 of this chapter. Just scan up to verse 1, chapter 7. It tells us there that Ezra was a direct descendant of Aaron's son, Eleazar. Which Aaron? The brother of Moses. That Aaron. That Aaron. That means what about Ezra? It means that he was a priest. Anybody know anybody with the last name Cohen? It very well, it may be, may be that they come from this same family tribe, genetic tribe right here. Because Kohen or Kohenim are the priests of Israel. And sometimes that name is preserved because it marks that genealogy. It marks that they come from priestly stock of Israel. Ezra, in fact, we, we, we might call him Ezra Cohen, right? <laughs> this is Ezra Cohen. He comes from that line of Jewish priests. So again, thinking about him, his distinction, even within among the Jews, beyond worshiping the same God as Ezra, how might a Jewish priest living almost 2,500 years ago, returning from exile in Babylon, be relevant for you today? Here's one way. Here's one way. If you read 1 Peter 2 last week, that was your Friday reading. 1 Peter 2, if you read that chapter, which is so dense, so thick, so wonderful, then you would have been reminded twice in that chapter that followers of Christ, that Christians are described as a priesthood before God. Two times it's mentioned that we're priests, we're a priesthood before God. There is, of course, one high priest. Amen? There is one high priest, Jesus. But through his priestly, sacrificial, atoning work on the cross, he has Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. Take a look at this verse. Revelation 1, 6. He has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. Not just some of us, all of us. All of us. After centuries of confusion in the church, this teaching, generally known as the priesthood of all believers, after centuries of confusion, this teaching was recovered in the 16th century by the reformer Martin Luther and many others 
who on the basis of the New Testament, the inspired word of God, they opposed the Roman Catholic distinction between the priests and the laity. That is the people. They opposed that distinction in light of the scriptures. And today, brothers and sisters, God also wants us to guard ourselves from unbiblical distinctions. Unbiblical distinctions. For example, because I'm standing up here teaching you God's word, I am not somehow more of a priest than you. That is not jive with the scriptures. That is not what the scriptures teach. We may have different gifts, but we share one calling. All of us share one calling as priests of God and of Christ. Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. That's all of us. Therefore, we should be asking this morning, we can ask this morning, what can Ezra, our fellow priests, did you hear that? What can Ezra, our fellow priests, What can he teach us about our priesthood? About being faithful, being a faithful priest. Is that your desire this morning? If you're just grappling with this idea that I'm a priest, I'm a priest of God, you're a priest of God, you're a priest of God, you're a priest of God. If you're grappling with that, right? Maybe you've never really taken that seriously. It's kind of one of those theological curiosities like, oh, that's really cool. And then your mind's on to whatever else, right? I got to fix mine. I got to change my oil today. Well, hold on, stop and don't go too fast. Don't go past it too fast. Meditate on that idea. You are a priest of God. And then be thinking about, I want to be a faithful priest. It's your heart to please the God who bought you with the blood of his own son, who loves you and cares for you. You want to be a faithful priest if he's giving you this privilege of serving him in this way. So if you desire to be a faithful priest, let's look to Ezra and learn from him. There are many things, of course, revealed in this chapter, in this passage, in this book about Ezra. It's wonderful to read about him uh, in this kind of second half of the book of Ezra. But even though there are many things, let me suggest that our main text here includes two especially important ideas. First, take a look. We learn something about Ezra's heart. We learn something about Ezra's heart. And second, we learn something about God's hand. We learn something about Ezra's heart. We learn something about God's hand. So first, something about Ezra's heart. The first description we get of Ezra here is actually a verse earlier in in verse 6. Take a look at verse 6. It says this. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that Yahweh, the God of Israel, had given Now, like sandwich or bookend on the back half of our main text, look at verse 11. Verse 11 pretty much says the same thing. It describes him as Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of Yahweh and his statutes for Israel. So right before and right after our main text, we're learning the exact same things. The same things are being emphasized about Ezra. So about half of the times Ezra is mentioned in Ezra Nehemiah, in the Hebrew Bible, one book, not two, one book, Ezra Nehemiah. And you can tell when you read them, they're, they're the same author. Ezra Nehemiah. So in Ezra Nehemiah, Ezra is mentioned, half the times he's mentioned, he's referred to as the scribe. 
a scribe or the scribe. What does that mean? Well, at the very least, it means Ezra could read and write and use those skills in some official or semi-official capacity. But in this context, his description, the one provided for us here, his description as a scribe certainly means that Ezra could read and even write copies of God's law. That's important. The law given by God to Israel through Moses after their deliverance from Egypt. You remember that? You remember the Ten Commandments? That's kind of the main uh, front piece of the law, the Ten Commandments, and there's a bunch of laws after that. This law given to Israel through Moses, thereafter being redeemed from Egypt, Ezra knew it. He understood it. He was an expert in it. He could, he could read it. He could write it. And he probably did. Please notice how our main texts, verses 7 through 10, specifically verse 10, expands on Ezra's relationship with the law of Yahweh. Right? We can't miss the clarification that he gives us here regarding that relationship. Before he was, verse 6, skilled in the law, in what God had revealed to Israel. Before he was, verse 11, learned in the words of God. He, we read in verse 10 that Ezra had set his heart to study the law of Yahweh and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. He had set his heart. Notice first, that, that, that's the first thing I want you to see there, verse 10. God is telling us something about the heart of this priest. He's not just saying what the priest did. He's telling us about his heart. God used this man, I believe, and a book of the Bible bears his name because of ultimately something about his heart. Having talked together in February and March about the story of King David, then this emphasis on the heart of Ezra is not surprising, is it? It shouldn't be surprising because God cares deeply for our hearts. He cares about your heart. Some people think of religion as, in terms of what we're doing, right? That's their main thing when they think about religion. If I went out there and talked with the people across the street in the houses here, the houses back here, I talked about religion, they would, they would hear me talking about, but they would expect me to talk about what they're doing what they shouldn't be doing, and what they should be doing. And maybe they're guilty because they're doing things they shouldn't be doing, and maybe they're guilty because they're not doing things they should be doing. Right? But that's usually how the conversation would go, the doing. What am I not doing? What, about, what should I do? What shouldn't I be doing that I'm doing? All of that. Right? Oh, you must be very religious. You're going to church. You're doing this. You're not cussing. You're not doing such and such. You must be very religious. When God wants to talk to us about true and pure religion, he's really talking to us about our hearts, isn't he? He's talking to us about our hearts. He, he wants to highlight the heart, the human heart, your heart, not the blood pump, the inner you, the inner person. And scripture highlights the heart over and over. So what do we learn here about Ezra's heart? We learn that it was set, S-E-T, it was set. What does that mean? It means it was fixed. It was focused. It was committed. 
It was dedicated to what God had revealed, the words of God. It was set, it was dedicated to those things. God had not only revealed himself through his law, but also in it the pathway his people should walk if they wanted to live. Why wouldn't the law be? I mean, how could the law not be glorious if it reveals God to us? And it reveals life and hope and peace to us. If it reveals goodness to us. How could you not want more of that? How could you not want to be committed and dedicated to such a thing? Undoubtedly, Ezra believed this about the word. It revealed God to him. It was good. It was true. It was just. He believed this deeply. Now, a second thing I want you to see here, a second truth to emphasize here in this passage regarding the heart of our fellow priest, a a second thing to emphasize about this verse, verse 10, is that his heart, Ezra's heart, was not simply set on the law of Yahweh, but specifically it was committed to what? To study the law and to do it and to teach it. You see that? Those three things. His heart was set on studying, on doing, and on teaching. We see that clearly here, don't we? We read here that Ezra simply, we don't read that Ezra was simply committed to the law in a mental way. We don't read here that he was merely committed to the law in a practical way. We don't read that it was just a vocational way, a means to an end to get back into that good kohenim, that good priesthood path. Maybe make a little extra, you know, offering and, you know, people bring the offerings, get a, get one of those cities. The Levites had those cities that they lived in being taken care of by the people in Israel. Yeah. Okay. This sounds good. I guess I better know the law then if I really want to have that job. Seems like a good job with good, good benefits, doesn't it? That's not what he's doing. It's clear that's not what he's doing here. No, he sets his heart to live God's word, to live it out fully in every part of his life. Why? Because that's what a faithful priest does. That's what a faithful priest does. Now, when you think about the work of a Jewish priest, I guarantee you, as you're thinking about the work of a Jewish priest right now, I guarantee you, you're thinking about the temple, aren't you? You're thinking about sacrifices, Animals' throats slit, <laughs> things being burned, bread, offer, incense being waved, kind of going in and out and all that stuff. That was just part of what the priest did in the Old Testament. It was a big part of it. But in addition to being intercessors in the temple or temple, in addition to being sometimes intercessors in judgment cases where, the, where they along with a judge would help adjudicate issues in Israel. In addition to this, priests were also very clearly from the law. They were, priests were those who announced God's word. They would read the law regularly to the people. They were supposed to at least. Deuteronomy 31 verses 9 through 13. They were those who taught God's people. Deuteronomy chapter 33 verse 10. Not only read it to them, but they taught it. 
And those who, they were those who blessed God's people. In examples, Numbers chapter 6 verse 22. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. And may he lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's the priestly blessing from Numbers. They were called to bless in that way. To read the word. To teach the word. To bless the people of God. This was part of the, 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 the priest's job. And that's the very thing Ezra, from the heart, is set on doing as he returns to the promised land. His heart is committed to this. Number two, something about God's hand. We've learned something about Ezra's heart. What about God's hand? Something about Here's something about God's hand. I simply want to point out that there's something in this chapter that's emphasized. In case you missed it, when you were reading this last week, look at and think about the connection between verse 10 and verse 9. That first word of verse 10 is a clue. Do you see it? For, F-O-R, for. That's telling us that in some way, verse 9 is happening as a consequence of verse 10. That verse 10 then goes on to explain something about verse 9 to us. Do you see that? God's good hand was upon Ezra for Ezra had set his heart to study, to do, and to teach. Do you get that? Do you see that relationship? And and that note about God's good hand, it's repeated in this chapter. It was already there in verse 6. Look at verse 6, you'll see it again, God's good hand. If you drop down to verse 28, do you see it there? God's good hand was on Ezra. It's repeated three times in this chapter. Now think about why God's people were needing, as we've been talking about Ezra and Nehemiah, why were God's people needing to return to Israel? Because they had been exiled, right? To use a cruder expression from the Old Testament law, the land had vomited them out, right? Upchucked out of the land, But why were they exiled out of the land? They were exiled out of the land because of their unfaithfulness to God, their covenant disobedience to God. Didn't God tell them that he would do that if they did not follow the law? Yeah, he already told them back in the book of Leviticus, book of Deuteronomy, both places that list curses, covenant curses, consequences on the people. And that's exactly what happened exiled as a consequence of their idolatry, their unfaithfulness to God, their covenant disobedience. Knowing that, it then should not be surprising that God is blessing a man who loves his law and wants to teach his people. You better believe God will give everything for that man to get that man to his people. To have that man bless his people. Does God want the same thing happening over again as the people return? Does he want them to fall right back into the gross sins that they were involved with before? No. And so when a man like Ezra sets his heart not only to study, but to do, and not only to study and do, but to teach, 
then you better believe that God will be behind him. You better believe that God will be working, right? It's confirming for us that a man with this heart is the man for whom God will provide and God will open doors and God will prepare a way. That's the man for whom God will move, even moving the heart of a king. The most powerful person in that whole region. God simply speaks and that king says, oh, you can go. And not only that, guess what? You go and you, dude, you take whatever you want. How about some, how about some silver? How about some gold? How about some grain? How about some of this? And let me write you a letter. And this is going to be basically like your blank check, this letter. You just take it. You go back there and you bless those people there and you bless that temple to the house of your God. And whoa, really? This is what's happening? That's God moving for the man who loves his word, whose heart is set not only on studying, but on doing. Not only on studying and doing, on teaching. Is Ezra a good priest? Is he a faithful priest? You better believe he is. Absolutely. That's what's being highlighted here. Ezra the scribe, descendant of Aaron. He's a faithful priest. We need to learn from him, don't we, brothers and sisters? So let's pull this together in regard to our priesthood this morning. I I hope you've been mulling over this idea of priesthood. I hope that you've been excited about this idea. Maybe you already knew it, but Pastor Bryce has just kind of brought it back onto your radar. The Holy Spirit of God has brought it back onto your radar. Your priesthood. As I pointed out earlier, if you are a genuine Christian, God's word identifies you as a priest. Every believer is. No exceptions. And though we do still offer sacrifices... We do. We offer sacrifices. Hebrews 13, we offer sacrifices of praise. We offer sacrifices of doing good and sharing with one another. Romans 12, we offer up every day. We're called to offer up a living sacrifice, which is ourselves. Are you faithful in that priesthood to offer up those sacrifices? That's what God calls you to. That's what he calls you to do. So even though we are still called to offer up sacrifices, as we just learned, God's priests also do what? Announce, teach, and bless. Announce, teach, and bless. The New Testament would not use the the language of priesthood and apply it to you if it wasn't pointing to these very things. Right? If it wasn't applying, applying the idea, the Hebrew Old Testament concept of priesthood to you and your life. There's a fuller picture, like I said, but part of it most certainly includes announcing, teaching, and blessing. So how does Ezra set an example for us here today? Here it is. You ready? By not only setting his heart on God's word, but also setting his heart to study it, do it, and teach it. This morning, I'm not asking you if you love God's word. I'm asking you, have you set your heart on it to study it, do it, and teach it? All three. Don't leave one out. Don't leave, don't leave one out. Doesn't work. Doesn't work if you, don't, if you leave one out. 
All three. To study it, do it, and teach it. This is absolutely critical in terms of faithfulness as God's priest. Why Ezra is being held up for us. To put it in more general terms, this is absolutely critical in terms of walking in a manner worthy of our gospel calling. Please carefully, brother, sister, carefully and prayerfully think about this idea in terms of your own life. What kind of a grip does the word of God have on your hearts? Do you find it merely interesting or is it captivating? Is it captivating? Is it uplifting to you or also upending and yet deeply satisfying? Is it comforting but also convicting? Is it good or is it glorious? What kind of grip does the word of God have on your heart? To be clear, I'm not asking you how often you read the Bible. I'm not asking you how many verses you've memorized. I'm not asking you how high you would score in a Bible knowledge quiz. I believe that this morning, God simply wants you to look at the relationship of your heart to his word. Full stop. Just take that. Just take a second. Think about that. What is my heart like before the word of God? What's the relationship between my heart and God's word? God simply wants you to look at the relationship of your heart to his word because that's where it all starts. That's where it all starts. It is possible. I know this from personal experience and I've seen it around me way too often. It is possible to be intellectually committed to the Bible and yet your heart simply isn't in it. Ezra is a great reminder for us. He serves as a good reminder to us that God wants us to set our hearts to fully embrace His Word. To set our hearts to fully embrace that Word. To live fully in that Word. And I think this is what Paul meant when he encouraged the Colossian believers. What did he say to the Colossian believers? He said this. Take a look. He said, Let the Word of Christ dwell in in you richly. Colossians 3.16 Let the word dwell in you richly. Couldn't the same thing be said about Ezra and the law of God? Yeah, the law it, it dwelt richly in Ezra. You can just tell by the words that are used there. He, he set his heart to study it. He set his heart to, to do it, to live it out. He set his heart to, to, to teach it. To give it away. But as we talked about, when Ezra set his heart on what God had revealed, it was specifically on three areas. Study, obedience, and teaching. Study, obedience, and teaching. And the question I think God has for us is to stop and ask, does this reflect my heart commitment to God's word? 
Does it reflect not my just mental commitment to God's word, as if I'm answering questions, what's right on a test? I mentally agree with you, Bryce. Preach it. Sound doctrine. I'm asking if your heart is dedicated, set, fixed, focused on in this way, on these things. Does that reflect your heart commitment to God's word? At different times, in different ways, I think all of us know that we struggle to keep these things together, don't we? We struggle to keep these things together. For example, sometimes we seem to set our hearts to study God's word, but deep down, we aren't as committed to actually obeying what we study. We focus on the knowledge, but we seem to to minimize the know-how. We're not like that hungry person who thinks, I can't see where I am going. I need, I want to move forward. I need a way out. I need, I want to know how to go, the path to walk. And so I turn to the word and I'm just drinking it in. I'm just consuming it because it reveals that way. Instead, data, knowledge, information, seems to be the main focus. And when this happens, we know that theological information can become an idol. At other times, we seem to set our hearts to do God's word, right? I want to live like Jesus. I want to follow his example. I want to be active in doing good. I want to be involved in service. But we are not as committed to being regularly guided in that ministry, in that service by God's voice in Scripture. We want to be a certain way, but we're not committed to daily listening, trying to hear, trying to understand better what He's communicated to us. And when that happens, guess what? Ministry itself can become an idol. Right? Christian ministry is what we serve, not Christ. Still at other times, at other times, we seem set, right? We seem to set our hearts to teach God's word. No, maybe not like me up here, but to share it, to explain it, to post it, to text it, to encourage or counsel with it, someone else. But deep down, we aren't as committed in that sharing to personally feeding ourselves with the word. It's not as if we'd taken and had this rich meal in the word and and said, praise God, hallelujah, I'm satisfied by your word. I've got to share it with my brothers and sisters. Oh, I know a brother or sister who's struggling right now who needs to hear this very word. Maybe we're not doing that. Maybe we're just putting it out there to put it out there. And when that happens, this affirmation that we receive from others, the praise of others, wanting to look a certain way, that can become an idol. You see, instrumentalizing the word of God in order to gain affirmation from men. That's not where you want to be, is it? What's the problem here? The problem is we're missing the three, the three that God has focused us on this morning. Right? The knowing, the studying, the knowing, the doing, and the teaching. But remember this example. Remember this example this morning Ezra has given us. He set his heart to study and to do and to teach. Let me drive this home one more time. Does 
the New Testament, and maybe you're asking this yourself, does the New Testament really affirm these three things for Christian priests like us? Give me a verse, Pastor Bryce, from the New Testament that's telling me about these very same things. I've got a doozy for you. I've got a beautiful one for you. Listen to the fuller context of the verse that I just shared moments ago. This is Colossians 3, 16 and 17. Listen to them with those Ezra ears this morning that we've just tuned in what God has taught us. Listen to these words. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It can't dwell in you richly if you're not studying, if you don't know it. Do you agree? Right? It can't dwell in you richly. It may dwell in you, <laughs> but it's not going to dwell in you richly unless you've meditated on the God's word. You know it, you study it, you meditate on it. What's the next part? Teaching and admonishing one another. Oh, but Pastor Bryce, that's your job. <laughs> it is my job, but it's your job too. With my gifts, I do it a little differently in different contexts than you in, in certain cases. It's still your job. Just like it's mine. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Here's a life fully embracing the word, the truth, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, D-O, in word or do, indeed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. That doesn't mean just walk around saying, oh, I pick up this microphone in the name of the Lord Jesus. I move this folder in the name of the Lord Jesus. I'm spinning in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's not it. It's doing all of those things in light of who he is and for his glory, that his name would be known. Consciously setting our hearts, fixing our eyes upon him, Doing all of that in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Of course, yes, I admit, this, the order there is study, teach, and do, rather than study, do, and teach. But do you see all of them there? This is a description of the community of Christian priests. Our priesthood. Brothers and sisters, Colossians 3, 16 and 17 is describing someone who has set his or her heart to live God's word. And on this one truth Sunday, we need to commit ourselves, don't we, to doing just that, committing, dedicating, setting our hearts just as Ezra did his. In just a moment, in light of this passage, I want to encourage you to talk with God about your heart and his word. Just, we'll just spend a, a moment doing that. And maybe that will be the priming the pump that will get you to continue that when you leave this place and throughout the week, talking to him about your heart and his word. Please remember this and remind each other of this. Our hope this morning is not in Ezra's example, is it? That's not our hope this morning. Our hope is in another man who knew the word, who did the word, and who taught the word, and unlike Ezra, did all three of those perfectly to the glory of God. That is our hope 
this morning. Our hope is in Jesus, in Christ crucified and raised to life as we celebrated last week, as we celebrate every single week. And you can be sure of this, God's good hand was on Jesus. It was on him. Even when you see the suffering of the cross, God's good hand was on him. God provided everything that he needed. God, his father was always with him. And through him, we are blessed. Therefore, if a man like Ezra set his heart on what God had revealed and how God had revealed himself in a pathway of life, how much more should we, in light of the better revelation of God through Jesus, in light of the better covenant and pathway of life, the fullness that we have in Jesus, how much more so should we want to set our hearts to study and do and teach that word. By his grace and by his spirit's power, inasmuch as we set our hearts as Ezra did to study, do and teach God's word, God himself, we can be assured of this, he will go ahead of us to prepare the way. He will grant us favor. How do I know this? Because, take a look at this verse, He wants to fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power. Set your hearts, resolve your hearts. Guess what? God's on your side. Set your heart to study, do, and teach the Word. Guess what? God's behind you. He's got your back. And that very word gives us this assurance. Take a look at this next verse. That we can abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Labor. Hmm. Labor. Who is he talking to there? He's talking to every believer in Corinth. You see, all of them were laboring, weren't they? All of them were laboring for Christ. All of them were involved in what Ephesians 4 calls the work of ministry. Every single one of them. And so he writes to encourage them and say, keep going. Your labor is not in vain. Why? Because the good hand of your God will be upon you, Christian priest. Do you believe that? Let's trust him for that as we go to the word in prayer.